Good morning. Welcome to Axios Today. It's Tuesday, March 9th. I'm Nyla Buda. Here's what you need to know today. The final touches on the stimulus bill. But first, more from our special series, The Week America Changed. Today, a story about the power of words, how then-President Trump's nickname for the coronavirus changed relations with China and the lives of Asian Americans. It was around this time last year that President Trump started to refer to the coronavirus by a nickname he insisted wasn't racist. Bethany Allen Ibrahimian is Axios's China reporter and has the story of the lasting impact of this label, not just on the U.S.-China relationship, but also on racism against Asian Americans here in the United States. I'll put it bluntly. The word choice was deliberate. From roughly March 16th onward in press briefings and on Twitter, President Trump refers to the coronavirus as the China virus or the Chinese virus. In one early March briefing, Trump even crossed out the word corona and replaced it with the word Chinese in black marker. While there was immediate pushback from Asian Americans who warned really strongly that this would exacerbate racism against Asians, by March, Asian Americans were already experiencing verbal abuse and even attacks by people who seemed to associate them with the coronavirus. Representative Judy Chu out in California warned against the use of this term. He is creating more xenophobia every single time he does that. And we can see the results in what's happening to Asian Americans across this country. A woman was assaulted on a New York subway just for wearing a mask. But when Trump was asked in a press briefing if he thought using the term Chinese virus puts Asian Americans at risk, Trump said no. Nonetheless, President Trump appeared to adopt this phrase for two reasons. First, Administration officials said this was an attempt to push back against China's disinformation. And Trump said that those who opposed using the term were siding with China. It's true that by this time, China was deploying propaganda and disinformation to obscure the fact that the pandemic had originated in China and that an early cover-up by Chinese government officials had allowed the virus to spread. But it's also pretty clear that this was part of the Trump administration's strategy to deflect blame for their own failures to effectively combat the coronavirus inside the U.S. For much of 2020, when administration officials were asked about the failures of the federal government to combat the coronavirus, time and again, officials would start talking about how it was China's fault that the virus wasn't contained in the first place. The relationship between the two countries completely broke down. Xi Jinping's top goal in March, besides getting China's own outbreak under control, was to convince Chinese people domestically and the rest of the world that the Chinese government was not at fault. There was kind of a a cascade of conspiracy theories on both sides. Some U.S. government officials floated the idea that the coronavirus was the result of a botched Chinese government effort to engineer a superbug. And Chinese diplomats then began suggesting on Twitter and elsewhere that the U.S. military might have planted the coronavirus in Wuhan. Here's what happened in the U.S. 
the Trump administration basically started giving a green light to policies that people had previously worried might damage the U.S.-China relationship. Some of the new measures included closing China's consulate in Texas, slapping sanctions on top Chinese officials for human rights violations, even banning trade with some Chinese tech companies. This wasn't some trade spat. Analysts have said that this was the lowest point in U.S.-China relations since the Tiananmen Square massacre in 1989. Trump's use of the phrase Chinese virus has lasting impact a year later. There's an ongoing surge in hate crimes against Asian Americans. According to one tally, there were more than 2,800 incidents of verbal and physical assaults directed at Asian Americans in 2020 alone. Bethany Allen Ibrahimian is Axios's China reporter. In 15 seconds, what's left to be done in Washington before the next stimulus hits your bank account? Welcome back to Axios Today. The House is expected to vote on the nearly $2 trillion COVID relief bill today. The Senate passed the bill on Saturday after one final round of changes. Axios' White House and congressional reporter Elena Treen is here. Good morning, Elena. Good morning, Nyla. Elena, this has been a long time coming. What finally ended up in this bill? It's pretty remarkable to see how similar this final version of the bill is to the proposal that President Biden had put forth. Of course, there are some changes here and there that we saw play out during the Senate debate of the bill last week, but largely it's what Biden and Democrats wanted. I think three big takeaways that our listeners should note in this bill are stimulus checks, roughly $128 billion to help K-12 schools reopen. $350 billion in state and local aid. One other thing that I should mention is the unemployment insurance benefit. So the Senate bill reduces that weekly payment to $300 per week instead of $400 per week, which was in the House bill. But it does extend the amount of time to receive those benefits through September, whereas the, the House bill was only through August. How many of these changes are temporary and are any permanent? That is a great question, and I think it is something that Congress is still trying to figure out. The child tax credit is definitely one where they're hoping to make it more permanent. So the new bill creates this benefit for children and tax credits for people with children that is only supposed to last for a single year. But Democrats are hoping that it can become more permanent. This is a great example of something that they're putting in the bill. They're going to wait and see how it works, how it's implemented, potentially try to move to make it a more permanent thing. Alina, the House votes today. How soon could this become law? Well, they need it to become law before the end of the week. They had known that March 14th was the deadline that they needed to get this done by. And of course, March 14th is this weekend. And that's when a lot of the existing benefits from previous coronavirus rescue packages were set to expire. Elena Treen covers the White House in Congress for Axios. Before we go today, we got so many voice memos from all of you. Thanks for taking the time to share with us some of your big decisions you had to make in March of 2020. We can't play all of them, but we'll be playing as many as we can. And here's one from Michael Coulter in Pennsylvania. This was not a dramatic decision in the sense of going off the grid or quitting a job. But on Wednesday, March 12, 2020, President Trump was about to announce or 
had announced that travel from Europe was being stopped. We had a daughter doing a gap year in France. She calls me, it's two o'clock her time, and says, Dad, what do I do? We furiously found a flight on Air Morocco from Western France, and she flew to Casablanca, and then from Casablanca to New York. I was able to drive to straight to New York, picked her up, was in the city for 30 minutes, turned around and left. Cost more money than we had wanted uh, and took you know, the daughter away from a great gap year experience, but it all felt very dramatic and it felt like those moments at the end of a post-apocalyptic film where you've got to get out of town. That's it for us today. You can read your team at podcasts at Axios.com or find me on Twitter. My handle's Nyla Boo. And for more important decision-making stories, tune into our afternoon podcast, Axios Recap. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. And we'll see you back here tomorrow morning.